You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab one, turn to Psalm 139. Yes, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so, we're going to continue in our series, uh, Summer in the Psalms, in um, which we are, we've picked 11 Psalms to walk through together uh, and know who God is, but also know, know deeply uh, who we are. So if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in front of you. There's a black one, and you can turn to page 548 and follow along with us. If you are not a Christian today, this is an opportunity for us uh, and for you to see what we believe. And we come to God's Word every week. We preach through books of the Bible because we want to know what God has to say. And so we're going to continue there in Psalm 139, this beautiful psalm together this morning. And as we start, I, I was thinking about this psalm, and I was thinking about uh, one of my favorite shows, uh, which is uh, it's called Smallville. It's about the young beginning of Superman. Most of you know who Superman is, but uh, the, the show came on about 10 years ago. It was, it was 10 seasons, and you walk through the life of Clark Kent, who is, who is going to become Superman. Uh, but he doesn't have all of his powers. He's dealing with this idea of believing in himself. And the last season, uh, sorry, uh, it's been on out for 10 years. I'm going to spoil it for you. So the, the enemy comes in the last few episodes, and uh, Clark Kent is still wrestling with who he is. Is he going to be the superhero that everyone thinks he is? Is he going to be Superman? And so he comes to fight the enemy. And the question, uh, that whole episode, he begins to forget his past. He, he puts those things behind him, his parents, all that they, that they taught him. And he's like, no, I got to do this on my own. But what he realizes in the midst of that battle is that he actually has to remember who he is and believe in himself and all that his parents and friends and all the things they had gone through for him to become Superman. The premise of the last episode is that do you believe in yourself? And church, that is the question that our culture wants to pose to you. But it's not the question of the psalm. It's not the question of David who comes and writes these words. The question for us is not what do we believe about ourselves? It's what do we believe about God? How big is your God? Because the words here in Psalm 139 depict a marvelous and mighty God. And when we understand that God, then and only then can we rightly understand who we are. So how big is your God? What do you believe about Him? So as we come to the text this morning, here's what we're going to see. David understands God's greatness and desires to be known by Him anyway. In the midst of knowing the grandness and greatness of God, David still wants to be known by Him. And if you're a Christian today, if you're a disciple, someone who is trying to follow Jesus faithfully, what should you do today? What should you know today? What you believe about God 
will determine your relationship with Him. What you believe about God will determine your relationship with Him. Let me give you an example. Do you believe that God is small? Do you believe that He's not there? Do you believe that He's not powerful enough? Because if you believe this, that God is small, then you do not need Him. There is no need at all for Him to intervene in your life. You will not give any time to Him. Well, what if God is just this cozy God, this friend, as we like to see on t-shirts these days, that God is my friend. There's no urgency. There's no fear. It's easy to come here and go through the motions and never think once about the grandness of God. It's easy to walk in and not be changed at all because you don't actually think that this God is who He says He is. You never consider His will or His mission or what He has to offer anyone who comes to Him by faith in Christ. Or, is the God that you believe in, is He a big God? A God who can meet every requirement. Who exceeds our imagination. Who is there for us. Who loves us. And as we've seen, who is in the intricate details of our lives. Because if you believe that that God, that big God is there, then He can be fully known. You can be fully known. As scary as that is, you can be fully known and fully embraced by that God. So that you may reject all those who oppose Him. And reject the idea that you have the answers. And instead, rest and trust Him wholeheartedly. This psalm, as, as we've heard read to us, and even as I start this morning, it is beautiful and grand and marvelous. It's deep, but it's also extremely personal. So as we read through this psalm, as we walk through God's Word, I want to show you four big ideas about God. And then what that means for us. Four big ideas about God and then what that means for us. So, number one, the first big idea. The Lord knows everything. Look there at verse one. Lord, you have searched me and known me. David begins with what God has done. God has searched him and because of this, he knows him. God's knowledge is personal and active. They have a relationship. And in fact, the entirety of of the psalm rests on the fact that this God is the God who knows David. With the beauty of these words and of this psalm, it can be tempting to look just at how big and beautiful He is. We can only keep it up here in our minds and it be about knowledge. It could be tempting to look at how big and powerful He is but never be in a relationship with Him. May we, what we believe about God drive us like David to be known and to be searched and still be loved. Right? And this knowledge, it's almost relentless as we see here in these verses. Notice the actions. If you just skim through the action that God takes, that He knows He's there. Right? And, and God is not up in heaven on a walkie-talkie with some of His angels. Like, hey, how's Cody doing today? Hey, what's going on? Right? That's not what he's doing. 
He is active. He knows. He's not sitting back and, and, and watching a 46-inch flat screen TV. No, he knows what's happening. He's intimately involved in the details. God knows everything. And he even knows what you are doing. He knows what you do. Look there at verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. As David makes his point that God knows everything, including where David is, he does this through using two opposites to make his point. Right? Like sitting down and rising. Now instead of describing who God is in big theological terms, David provides a vivid imagery to capture our, our minds, but also our hearts. The act of God knowing is described seven times in the psalm, which reinforces God's ability, but also the relationship by which David has with him. God knows because God observes. He searches. He examines. He has examined David and therefore he fully knows him. None of these descriptions, though, imply a hostility. It isn't that God knows uh, the negative and only the negative about David. No, He knows everything about David. And there is a relationship. It is rather the depth of God's knowledge. And this knowledge is held in tension with the psalm. Notice that God knows, He understands, but He understands from far away. Now, in the last section of these psalms, there's 150, so the last book, the fifth book, God is is continually described as the the God in the heavens, which talks about the God in the heavens who is the cosmic king of the universe. He is there and he is big and grand and he is in control of all things. And so he is fully aware of your life and my life and every intricate detail that goes on. As the Bible tells us that he knows even the hairs on your head. He may be sitting in his throne. He may be watching over the entire universe, but he knows exactly what you are doing, even in this moment. God knows where we are. He knows where we're going and what we're going, what's going to happen to us. Despite of anything, he knows the details and they're held in his hands. God knows everything. And God knows what you think. Look at verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you know about it. Lord, you have encircled me and you have placed me, your hand upon me. David explains that even before our brains can tell our mouths to speak, God knows what's on our minds. And in fact, God knows our minds more closely than we even know them. When I was younger, especially uh, in middle school, sixth grade, I would talk all the time. My teacher would move me around. So for you teachers in the room, I'm sorry. I was the kid that you could not stop talking. It didn't matter if you moved me beside the kid that never talked. I would have him talking by the end of class. And so they would move me around. And eventually I got to a place where uh, they, she put me up front. Uh, dear Miss Lockie, she's wonderful. Uh, and she put me up front in the cubicle desk. But what she didn't realize was that her desk was right there. And that I was going to talk to her even when no one else was in the room. Right? So she moves me around, even in the midst of a sixth grade mind who would not stop talking, who would speak before I ever thought about it. God knows. God knows what's going on in the midst of our hearts and our minds. 
He knows what you think. Now, where does this lead David to? Or where does this lead him to? How does God's knowledge of his thoughts and action change David? He's awestruck. Why? Because we can't fully understand God. Look at verse 6. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. To know that God has encircled you, this is a, a military term. To it's surround you, it's to protect you, it's to, uh, to hem you in, maybe some of your translations say. Right? But it's not just physically, but it's your thoughts and your actions. Should this not cause us to pause for just a moment and think and ponder? Should this not stop us in our tracks? God's knowledge David says it's so wondrous that it's complex and puzzling. It stops us. Should all of this, though, not comfort us that God knows exactly where you are and He knows everything about you and what you think? Should this not comfort us? At least those who have a relationship with God. Because it's a very real possibility and a reality that this may cause fear in you. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest writers uh, that we've had uh, who became a Christian, he talks about his conversion and how he would, he said it, the more he began to know who God was, he began to put up walls because he understood what it meant to be fully known. And, and we don't come here, though, to be fully known and to be scared in a spotlight. No, C.S. Lewis understood that once those walls come down and God fully knows us, there we fully experience His love. For those of us who are in Christ, we can come and we can be fully known and fully loved at the same time. And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ today, that fear of being fully known may scare you to death. But the God who fully knows you wants to fully love you. And He has offered His Son on the cross for you. And so you can, yes, be fully known and be fully loved. And that love can change you. He can transform you. You can call on Christ even now. The Lord knows everything. And this should draw us to Him. What you believe about God will ultimately determine your relationship with Him. Which brings us to our second big idea. The Lord is everywhere. The Lord is everywhere. Look there at verse 7. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The impulse to run from God is as old as sin and as old as human nature. Right? We are confronted with the magnitude of God's knowledge. It can be overwhelming. But David is not trying to flee God in a negative way, but more like how a child likes to play and run from their parents. When, when I get home from work, Generally, Graham, what he wants to do is he wants to chase me, Daddy. Chase me. Right? When he was younger, I loved, before he could form you know, a few word sentences, I loved he would say, I get you, Daddy, which meant for me to chase him. He wanted to run. So this is, it's not that David is trying to get away in a negative sense. It's that he's trying to ask, where can I go to escape you? Because like Graham, Graham can't get away from me. He knows that I will catch him. And so David, he sets up these rhetorical questions meant to suggest that the fullness of God's presence can never be escaped. The presence of God is always in front of David. 
He will never be able to get away from it. The Lord is everywhere. In heaven and in the grave. Look there at verse 8. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. David first focuses on the vertical nature of God's presence. We know that God's dwelling is in the heavens. We don't have to, to be told that. It makes sense that God is there in the heavens. He is in control of all things. He sits on His throne. Nothing can escape Him. But He is also in Sheol. Now, Sheol, we should understand this as the land of the dead or the grave. Don't think about that in some weird Greek mythology sense, but it's just a way to describe the dead or the land of the dead. Right? Even death cannot escape God's presence. You can die and still be with God. He is still there. And the Gospel changes what we think about the grave, does it not? Without God, we are hopeless and dead in our sin. But in the Gospel, in Jesus Christ, we get a fuller picture of what the grave actually is. Christ went to the grave to secure life for us. No longer do we have to be afraid of death. Now we can embrace it. The Gospel changes what the grave is. Christ could not be held down by it. And the grave now is a paradise. Why you think of Paul who says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Even when we go to the grave, God's presence is there. And for those of us who are in Christ, we now get to experience everything that He has to offer. So God is in the heavens and in the grave, but He's also on the earth. Look there at verse 9. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. There's not just a vertical nature of God's presence, there's a horizontal. Right, David uses some terms here we may not understand, like the wings of the dawn, that represents the, the east. We know that the, the sun rises in the east. And the western horizon, which is the CSB uses, some of your Bibles uh, may use a a terms about the sea. Right, so the sea was on the western side of the people of God where they lived. And so what we see here is that God is from the east to the west. You cannot get away from Him. Remember the prophet Jonah who tried to get away from God. He tried to flee God. He tried to go away to get out of Israel, to get out of God's people. He went all the way down to Joppa. There was nowhere to go. What did he realize? For God's presence wasn't even in the depths of the sea, in the belly of a great fish. God was there. God is there on the earth. But God is also even in the darkness. Look there at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Darkness in the Old Testament represents chaos and death. It's not a good thing. We make fun of, of people who are afraid of the dark, but legitimately, darkness is a bad thing. It's the absence of light and David, maybe he believes if he goes into the darkness, God won't be there. But even if we run to the night or hide ourselves from the light, God will always be there. And in fact, God will shine his light in the darkness. God cannot experience darkness because anytime he, anytime he enters it, he brings light to it. Right? Even when we cannot see him, God is there. 
Uh, the Apostle John writes, as Nate read for us this morning in his Gospel account, that the light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There is no darkness, no death, no chaos that can take over God. And Darren Mitchell, he tells a story of a father who wakes up in the middle of the night and his house is on fire. And he goes and he grabs, he has two sons, he goes and grabs his first son, he brings him out and he gets him to the road and he makes sure he's okay and he looks back and the, the flames are huge. And, he, and it's smoke and he can't see to get in and he's trying to figure out and he can hear his son hollering for him. And so he runs to the back of the house and it's smoky and it's dark and he can't see. And he's t yelling at his son, hey son, I'm here. I'm here, hey, you can, he can't, he's in the second story, so he, he, he can't go into the house, so the son's got to jump. And the son is like, but dad, I can't see you. Dad, I can't see you. And his father responds, it doesn't matter, because I can see you. I can see you. Even in those times where we feel like God is not there, even in times when we feel like God does not have a hold of us, He is there. We cannot escape Him. And that's a good thing. The Lord is everywhere. He, he is where we wouldn't think He is. But more importantly, He's always able to catch us. Our relationship with Him must be built on the trust that He is there. Which brings us to our our third big idea this morning. The Lord creates everyone. The Lord creates everyone. For centuries, one of the most intimate and closed off places in the world was a mother's womb. You couldn't access it. Only God could see the invisible, like the pre-born baby. And enter that inaccessible place. We know of stories where God made women who were barren to be able to have children. So God can enter into that womb. He can go there. And He is the author of every detail of our being. David's birth is not just an afterthought, but serves to buttress these first two ideas. Right? A deeper understanding of God's knowledge and God's presence actually helps us even understand the mystery of birth. Right? All, points one and two, these first two stanzas, they point us. David actually, he comes to this and he sees that no matter where he's been, his entire life, God has always been there. All the way back to conception. All the way back to his beginning. As the Lord creates everyone, and the Lord does so in the womb. Look there at verse 13. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. David used very specific and creative language here in these verses. First, the word created brings to mind possession. Right? God has made us. Think back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. Right? God makes Adam out of the dust of the ground. He makes Eve out of Adam's rib. Right? And then we come from Eve. God has made us. And there we belong to Him. We are God's. And then David explains in, more colorful, in a colorful, detailed uh, language how God created us. He says God knit us and David in the womb. This word knit 
is used to explain what someone does when they weave a tapestry or a quilt. Ash and I just received a quilt from one of our friends. Her, uh, her mom lives in Oklahoma and she, she mailed us a quilt that she had made. And it takes a lot of time and effort and, and detail to weave those kinds of things. This is exactly what God does in the womb. There are complex patterns, colors, and designs. There is a magnificent beauty in what and who God has made. David uses poetry to proclaim the beauty of humanity and particularly what God has done. But let me give you some scientific details that we now have that David didn't. This is the first time that I've been able to preach on the sanctity of human life since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And praise God, because 50 years of this, that this has been the norm in our country. When we come to passages like this, where we see the beautiful tapestry that is the human life, we believe that every life matters. And particularly the lives of babies in the womb. Why? Not only because David beautifully talks about it, but because we have some scientific details. Right? A baby's heart begins to beat on day 21 after conception. A baby's lungs are formed on day 26 or 27 after conception. On day 36, the baby's eyes develop their first color in the retina. And on day 40, the baby makes her first reflexive movements. On day 42, the baby develops nerve connections that will lead to the sense of smell. The brain is now divided into three parts. On day 44, there's electrical activity detected in the brain. And at eight weeks, the baby is well formed, well proportioned, and every organ is present. And on top of that, the baby can feel pain. At nine weeks, if the baby is probed, the baby's eyelids and hands close. And at ten weeks, their fingerprints are formed. We can see the beauty of even the unborn, even now. But even with the science that we have in a broken world, it's easy to dismiss that these babies are human. Because we don't want to believe that God is there in the midst of even the most intimate of places. Our God is there. Even at the beginning of our conceptions. Now let me be very clear too. The stats are out there that by 45, one in four women have had an abortion. That number is way too high. But let me be also be very clear. It would be, it would be wrong of me to assume that no one in this room has been a part of that. Whether you are a woman that's had an abortion or you are a father that asked, asked for an abortion. There's still grace and kindness and mercy. David killed someone. We see the Apostle Paul who was a murderer and who, who terrorized the church. There's grace but there's only grace and forgiveness in Christ. That is the only place that we will find this. And so if you are broken by this, there is grace at the cross of Jesus for you. Why? Because He came into the world as a baby. He came so that you may be forgiven. 
And my prayer for all of us is that we champion life, but we also were able to care for women and babies who are born. Because there's lots of work to do in our country, and we must be here ready. Because we believe this, we believe now that every baby, even after it's born, matters. And so we must be here ready and willing to serve and love those children and love those mothers and love those fathers who even wanted that abortion. Because it's the love of Christ that compels us to go and to love and to serve. We believe that God is in the midst of these most intimate details. And that we matter. That every baby matters. But God also creates everyone in mysterious awe. Look there, verse 14. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know them very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Right? This psalm emphasizes not simply the quality of the workmanship, that we are God's creation and beautiful, I were fearfully and wonderfully made, but instead on the mystery that is of the human birth. Or the psalmist acknowledges that human creation from the beginning is a mystery and wonder only known to God. And since God makes us and forms us and creates us, we have value. He is the one who gives that value. And again, David he highlights the private nature of our beginnings, right? He said he uses this phrase, in the depths of the earth that he was formed. It's a metaphor for the deepest and most intimate places. That God is even at work there. Even in the hiddenness of the womb, God is there. And God is working. And so we are made, God makes everything in mystery, but he also makes it in advance. Like there at verse 16. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God saw us even before we took shape. Even before we were uh, out of the prenatal stage and without form, David stresses that God was there in the beginning and was present even in the womb in some of the most microscopic of details. All the way back then, before our brains and organs and arms were formed, God knew every detail of our lives. God has planned them and knows them. He knows exactly where you are and where you're going to be. He knows the plan that He has for you. So not only do we have value, but we have purpose. And a God who has enabled us to live out that purpose in the gospel. And so we have been made by God, but also He knows us in advance. And also, God creates everyone for a relationship. Look there at verse 17. God has, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Even when I wake up, I am still with you. The sheer magnitude of God's concern for every detail, again, flows out of David. He proclaims that God's thoughts are precious to him, right? So understand that they are difficult yet desired. 
Difficult yet desired. Do you desire to know God like David wants to know God? George MacDonald, who is quoted saying this, he says that the one principle of hell is this. I am my own. I am my own. That's the one principle of hell. That I want nothing to do with God and I want nothing to do with what He has for me. The basic thought of our, of our time and place right now is don't interfere with me. I know what's best. I know what I want. And I'm going to do it. That goes against everything that God has done for you. Everything that God has spoken to you in His Word and done in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact... If God doesn't interfere in your life, you will be destined to be separated from Him forever. But it's not just, it's just that God's thoughts or His eye for detail are on us, but that God is always with us. God is not going to leave His work, His beautiful creation, alone. He is not going to leave it to chance or to extinction. He is going to be here with us and for us. Some of us worry about the future. Some of us don't function well in uncertainty. I want to encourage you, if you struggle with anxiety, to write down verses 17 and 18 and place them somewhere in your house where you see them. On the mirror, on the fridge, that God knows you and that He has counted every detail of your life. And they are written in His book. That He knows them. There is nothing that can surprise God or escape Him. He is in control. And He is there. He is there. The Lord creates everyone. He has formed you. He knows you. He knows your path in life. He was your beginning. Is this what you believe about God? God's knowledge and presence and work in our lives should cause us to give our lives back to Him. So it brings us to our fourth big idea. The Lord judges His enemies. The Lord judges His enemies. Now, understand these truths about God must be the foundation for a relationship with Him. In a fast-paced world of technology and medical advances and entertainment, it can be really easy for us to forget or just think, I don't need God. Or even believe that you want Him. But this isn't true. We need Him, as David clearly shows us. We need Him to be involved in every detail of our lives. And so there's a massive shift here in this last stanza, these last six verses. I think this change points to a willingness to be accepted by God and to surrender to Him. But first, we're going to see that there are some people who oppose God. There are those who oppose God. Look at verse 19. God only, if only would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. You invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you? And detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. 
Now, it can be really easy to look at this psalm and to either, what in the world is going on? How can David pray that? Or think this is some option for legitimate hatred. Remember, this is a psalm, right, which, is, which uses hap, uh, hyperbolic language and uses imagery to paint the picture. Who, they use it to get the point across. Right, these words, enemies and hate, are not spite for other people, but zeal for God. We are to be wholeheartedly committed to God. Right now, in our world, there are, there are lots and lots of hate and anger. This is not the way of Jesus. The gospel changes our fighting spirit to love for God and our neighbor. But let me be very clear. This does not mean that we don't stand against sin or those who oppose God. Because we absolutely do. Wholeheartedly loving God means that we are against what, what He hates the things that he is against. First John tells us that we cannot have friendship with the world. But we are to be different in how we stand against God's enemies. So what does that look like? It looks like verses 23 and 24. Verse, those verses show us that there are those who are also led by God. Look at verse 23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Those who are led by God desire for God to search them. Again, this could be scary. This is not a great exam. But not for those who are, have experienced God in Christ. Right? This examination is to see if there is any offensive way that is harmful or grievous or idolatrous way in us. Why? Because sin is never an isolated event. We know that we ultimately sin against God, but we also hurt and harm others. We must desire to be searched by God so that He can lead us to what? The everlasting way. Which brings us back to Psalm 1. That those who are with God, those who are righteous will prosper. For those who are wicked, they will be thrown away like the grain that's not used. We know that the wicked will perish and that God will judge them, but the righteous will live forever. This is why we want to be searched, because we want God to lead us into everlasting life. David does not just attack the evil around him. He doesn't stand on a mountaintop and scream about all the evils that he faces. We cannot look at the world and be so angry and justify it. it's because they're sinful. Why? Because so are we. We are just as sinful. Our sin is no different. It may look different. It may be expressed differently. We may have different sin habits, but the world, sin, we know that we are sinful just like they are. And here, David does not just go after them. He looks deep inside of himself and he asks God, show me, show me where sin is because I want to be forever living with you. The gospel and the answer to that sin, by the way, which is only the life, death, 
burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is the only thing that can cause us to look deep inside of ourselves. To invite God into, into the very throne of our hearts. To ask God to rip out all the notions of pride, arrogance, and self-righteousness. Because at the core of all of, of those sins is what? Fear. Fear. That we will be rejected, or that we will not be loved, or we will not be happy. And all of those are false. Fear that we will not be loved. Fear that there is no purpose. Fear that there is no God in difficult times. Which are not true. But this psalm has shown us right, that God knows everything. And He sees everything. And He is everywhere. He's in control. Even when we're not. Even in the depths of our beginning, God is there and in control. When we are confronted with His love and His kindness and His grace, we see that He is so caring of us. He loves us and is gracious. May we not stand against Him, but may we stand with Him to promote life and holiness in Jesus Christ, to invite the world who is broken, who is sinful, yes, but is longing for an answer. And if we... Do not show them what the change actually does in the Christian's life. Then why do we think the world will ever be any different than what we see? May we be searched. May we be examined by God so that we may know the way everlasting. So that we may know and submit and trust and have faith in this God. Because if we believe this, these four things about God. May we love Him and give our lives fully to Him so that we may be used in the world that's broken and fully needs Him to redeem us. Will you pray with me and ask God to do that? God in heaven, we have proclaimed today that You are grand and mighty and strong. You know everything. You are everywhere. You have formed us even in the midst of the womb. You care for us and you are kind. But God, we know that there are those who oppose you. We know that, that the devil, he desires for all of us to oppose you. But we know that because of Christ's first coming, he will come again and he will right every wrong. He will make everything new again. This is the gospel that we hold on to. That in Christ we can be fully known, yet fully loved and embraced. Would this gospel permeate our lives? And would it permeate our homes? And would it permeate our neighborhoods and our communities and our workplaces and our schools? So that the world experiences something different. And the world sees that this God is who He says He is. We ask that you would make us the people that display that we believe these things about you this morning, God. We ask all of them and all of these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.